Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 21. It's been a, a few weeks since we've been in Matthew, uh, but we are returning to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in uh, chapter 21. We'll be covering verses 1 through 17. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll dig into Matthew chapter 21. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you, uh, Lord, um, because you are God. You are worthy of our praise, and we thank you, Lord, that you are holy, you are mighty, you are awesome, you are pure, um, you are distinct from us, you are our creator and sustainer. Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us to know about you. We thank you that you desire us to know about you. Um, and so, Lord, we come to your word reverently and in your presence, Lord, asking that your spirit would guide us through this portion of Matthew as the, as the story shifts, as we enter into Jerusalem uh, for Jesus' final week um, on earth, Lord. And so, Father, I pray uh, that you would speak to us through your word that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us not only to understand the story, uh, but that you would show us uh, things that apply to us and that you would allow us um, to humble ourselves before you so that, so that we would be in a position for you to speak to us. Uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Beth, Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on their, the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, 
and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to sort of give us a little orientation of, of where we've been, where we're going geographically. Um, the, the, the trek to Jerusalem happened two chapters ago, starting in verse, uh, chapter 19. Um, most of Jesus' ministry happened up at the Galilee region. And so they begin the trek for Passover up here in Capernaum. They would have sort of gone around this side of the lake because this is the Decapolis. This is a region that was pagan and they would have really sort of avoided. Um, they, they came around this side of the lake. They would have crossed over the Jordan to avoid Samaria. And then they would have trekked south along um, the Jordan River down to about here. Along this journey, they, they were met with opposition. They were met by Pharisees and scribes sort of asking questions, trying to trip up Jesus. Questions concerning marriage and divorce and other things. Our, our, our last story um, previously ended with um, some men being healed by Jesus, his showing compassion for them. Uh, they then began to make their trip up to Jericho. From Jericho into Bethany, into Jerusalem, it's a steep, steep, steep ascent. It's probably, I, I think, if my, out of my memory, it's about 3,500 feet, uh, but a very short, abrupt way up the hill. If we click over to the next slide, um, we're, we've now zoomed in. So you see Jerusalem here. Um, they would have entered from up here. There's Bethany, which is two miles out from the temple. Uh, a mile in, there's Bethphage. And then about here, this is like the top of the hill. When you, uh, when you look to and see pictures of Jerusalem today, there's the Dome of the Rock, the big golden dome. Uh, there it is, but we'll go back in a second. So there's the, no, you can go. That's great. You're helping me. Uh, um, so this down here is sort of uh, the top of Mount Olives, which, which kind of goes along here. This is the Kedron Valley through here. You can see the, the, the wall of, the, the, of Jerusalem going around here. That's the Dome of the Rock. Um, and then that's part of the wall around Jerusalem forms part of the, uh, the eastern wall of, of uh, the temple, but we can go back here. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. So that last picture was taken eh, probably in this region right in here. Um, it's a downhill and then an uphill into the Eastern Gate, which you can no longer go into the Eastern Gate today. So if you can go to the next slide. And the, the reason that you can't go into the Eastern Gate, which we'll look at in more detail today, is all of these graves, what we're looking at is, is tombs here, um, they're above ground. They would put the body there. The body over the course of time would deteriorate until there were just bones there. And then they would collect the bones and place them sort of in a spot in the grave. And then as families died, they would use this sort of to keep the family together. Um, as you get down towards the bottom of the hill, the, the graves or the tombs get bigger and more significant because the closer you are down here, the more important you were. So like the prophet Zechariah and others like him are, are buried down there. 
It's possibly, you know, when you're dating that far back, it's all speculation. Um, but then, and the reason they're there is because it's really close to the temple. But then as you come up the hill, there's more graves along here. These are not Jewish graves. Um, that is the eastern gate. This picture, it's probably hard to see. That's the eastern gate, but it's been totally bricked up the whole way. Um, this is due to Islam. Islam knows that the Jews and Christians believe that the Messiah will enter through the eastern gate. And so what they've done is they've buried their remains all along here to, to sort of desecrate the eastern gate, and they've walled it in, uh, sort of thinking and speculating that this will sort of hinder um, the Messiah's second return. Um, okay, now the next slide. And then we're going to stop at this slide. This, this is sort of the, this is the temple during Herod's reign. This is what's known as this, the second temple. Herod rebuilt it. Um, this area in, in here, to put things in perspective, is about, um, I want to say 25 acres, but I'll have to look at my notes here in a second, my memory. I'm pretty sure it's 25 acres. It's, it's huge. Um, the actual temple in the center area is about a football field or two. It's another big area. It, on the map, it's, oh, it's a small area within this area. But really, this, 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 the best word I can think of for this area is ginormous. I mean, it, it, it is huge. Um, so the, today's story, Jesus is making his way there, and most of it's going to happen in this sort of the southeast quadrant, um, which, which is known as the Court of the Gentiles. This is where people... Uh, were, were allowed to go. Um, there was restrictions for who could enter here. But really, the temple was sort of the, it was in God's intention, it was sort of like an evangelistic tool to draw the nations to him using Israel um, to, to be the light to the world. And so I'm just going to leave this up here, and you guys can, can look at the temple and kind of have that in your mind um, as, as we're working through the story. Now, sort of a... a <clears throat> Uh, some, just to show us where, where Matthew is going. Um, chapter 21, it's, this is referred to as Palm Sunday. This is, it's Sunday afternoon. They believe that Jesus got a late start in his day, um, entering into the, the Passion Week. Um, chapters 21 and 22 take us from Sunday through Wednesday. Okay, so Matthew takes us chapters 21, 22. That's Sunday through Wednesday of the calendar. Then that's broken by two discourses. Uh, chapter 23 is, is, I believe, the fourth discourse. It has no name. Uh, it's, it's a teaching of Jesus. And then once chapter 23 ends, uh, the final discourse is given. And the final discourse is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We're going to make it all the way to the end of chapter 23 by the end of September, and then we're going to take a break um, because everything's leading to the crucifixion, and about that time, we're starting to turn our attention towards Christmas and various things, and so then we're going to pick up chapter 24, verse 1, on January 8th, I believe, and so then chapters 24 and 25 um, take us to the Olivet Discourse. And then chapters 26 through 27, that takes us through Thursday to Saturday of Jesus' life. It's fascinating 
how much time, if you were turning with me, you can go back to chapter 21, how much attention all of the gospel writers give to this last week of Jesus' life. Much of the gospels sort of fly through three years, and then you get to the last week of Jesus' life, and everything slows down, and everything gets to, to sort of the micro picture of what's happening. Um, if you were to uh, sort of take all of the gospels and figure out how much attention is given towards the last week of Jesus' life, a third of all of the gospels writing focus on this. So this is very important um, uh, for, by God, that, that, that so much attention will be given to this last week. Um, okay. So chapter 21, we're kind of, we've kind of eased our way in here. We see that when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage and the Mount of Olives, uh, I want to stop there. They made their journey all the way from the northern part of Israel down to the southern part. Then they've worked their way into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, during this time, it was the Passover. The, the city population would just swell. Um, it's, it's believed that the, the average population in Jerusalem during this time was 70,000 people. Um, the population swelled to over a quarter of a million people. Um, there would have been lambs and various animals to, to be sacrificed, um, just sort of flooding the city. It, it was a very, very busy week. And today's story is we look at Jesus making his way to the temple as people are bringing their lambs to be sacrificed. Jesus on a donkey is the lamb making his way to be the ultimate sacrifice for us. It's a powerful, powerful story. Uh, the, the adrenaline, um, the awe as you approach Jerusalem, even today, uh, for those of you who have been there or you, those of you who are, will go on our next trip in three years or so, um, that there is something about ascending to this city that, that is in, it's just overwhelming. Uh, this last trip, our tour guide guy, and he's the tour guide we'll only use for, for the rest of as long as I'm leading trips over there, he, um, he's really funny. And so as we were making our way up to Jerusalem, when we got to the part where you could just be taken away by the temple, there's a view, he tells everybody in the bus, hey, everybody, and if you're going on the next trip, just forget that I told you about this. You'll like three years. He'll for, he's like, hey, everybody, you need to look out the left side of the bus. There's something that's just absolutely spectacular. And I'm kind of giggling. And everybody's looking at the left. And they're like, all I see is houses. And uh, what, what are we looking for? And he's kind of drawing them out a little bit. And then he's like, you know what, guys? I'm just joking. Turn around to the right. And then they turn around to the right. And it's, there's this beautiful white city with the golden dome just there and everybody's like oh. you could hear the collective gasp of the bus it's just overwhelming and so i have this picture of the disciples and jesus as they make their approach to this great city the the, the hustle and bustle and all of the people and the sounds of the animal and the temple going it, 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 I, I i can't even imagine how overwhelming this was for them and so they're just making their 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 sense going into this uh, when Jesus had approached Jerusalem, had come to, to Bethpage and, and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends two disciples. Now, he's going to send two disciples to get this, this young colt and, the, and, and the, the donkey uh, to come back to fulfill some scripture. What Matthew leaves out from the story is a significant uh, uh, incident that, that, that happened over in Luke, or Luke records it. See, how many times did Jesus weep in the scriptures? Twice. 
Uh, he, he wept when Lazarus died, and then the other time he wept or cried was, was during this scene. So as he's approaching Jerusalem, he gets a look at, at this, the Jerusalem, this beautiful, magnificent city. And in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, uh, we read this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem them in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So this is significant. Jesus comes up. Um, it's been said by somebody um, that you can tell a man who he is um, by the things that he cries about, the things he gets angry at, and the things that he laughs at. And in today's story, we get a glimpse of Jesus through these two different lenses. So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, uh, approaching the Passover, his hour has come, he's heading to the cross, we see that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. His heart breaks for them and the Jewish people because they had missed it. See, this, today's event is a, probably one of the most significant prophetic events that, that happened in the life of Jesus. Um, some have suggested that according to Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to read it to you, but if you want to do a, a follow-up study, um, uh, chap, Daniel ch- chapter 9, verses 21 through 27, happened some 500 years before the events today. And there's mention of the 70 weeks. Now, the 70 weeks is a time, and it kind of, Daniel made this prophecy that the Messiah would come to the city and do all these great things. And, and so a number of, of very smart theologians who looked at the 70th week and started looking at the calendar of when that was prophesied, and if you mapped it out, when that timeline would unfold. They, they say that to the day Jesus walks on scene and fulfills his prophecy, with this one prophecy alone that said, this is all Christianity needs to affirm that Jesus is this Jewish Messiah. You cannot recreate this. And so as Jesus comes fulfilling this great prophecy, he knows that he's going to be rejected he knows what's going to happen. And so he weeps for the city. Uh, that, that last line there in Daniel, what did it say? It said, um, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He's saying, you guys had everything in the scripture pointing to this day and you're oblivious to it. What's about to happen is huge. I think that one lesson in seeing how Jesus weeps I think that there's a lesson for us as I do believe that we should, we should weep as Jesus weeps. Here in this story, Jesus weeped for those who didn't know him, who had rejected him, who, who failed to see all of the handwriting on the wall, uh, pun intended from Daniel, um, th- that he would come. And so how do you look upon those who don't know Christ or who've rejected them? I, I think that we as Christians we, we shouldn't get angry at them. We shouldn't be mad at them and want to start a fist fight. Our hearts should absolutely break that they have been, been blinded to the overwhelming evidence of who Christ is, and we should love on them and minister to them 
praying that God and by His Spirit would move in their hearts that they would come to a place where they would receive Christ as their Savior. I know that I want my heart to break for those who are unsaved. I'm not always perfect in that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I just I get mad and upset at them. Um, but, I, but I want my heart to be sensitive because these, Christ has died for them. And so he tells his two disciples, we don't really know who these two guys are, but it would make sense. Many believe that this is Peter and John, that they were good uh, compadres in, in going about things. And so he tells them, hey, go into the village opposite you. Some believe that they were in Bethany and that he sent them to Bethpage a, a, a mile away. And, and you're going to find a donkey there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, namely the owner of these two animals, um, just say the Lord needs it. And they'll be, okay, no problem. I sure wish this, I like, I wish I could go down to like the Dodge dealership and say, hey, uh, can I get the keys for this pickup truck? Uh, yeah, the diesel, the extended cab, and a, you know, crew cab. The Lord's in need of it. Okay, sir, have, have fun with it. I'll bring it back when I'm done in you know, a few years or never. And but he just says, go. And I love that the disciples, they don't even, at this point, they're so broken by Jesus and like he asks crazy stuff and there's 10,000 people here. You need to feed them. How are we going to do that? Don't worry about it. Just feed them. It'll work out. And, and, and so they're like, well, okay. They just go get this. They get the, the, the donkey and the colt and it, it works out. Matthew doesn't really elaborate. Um, then we see in verse four, as they go out, why this is so important. Like, this seems like such a strange request, this deal with the donkey and the colt and, and just gr- borrowing it from somebody, and it, it's all going to work out. Now, Matthew makes this interlude in verse 4. Th- th- this isn't the story unfolding. This isn't Jesus speaking. This is Matthew r- writing his gospel. Remember, Matthew is written to the Jewish audience. Matthew's sole intent is to show the Jewish person that Jesus has fulfilled all of the requirements that are required of the Messiah. From the beginning genealogy all the way through, he, more than anybody, quotes from the Old Testament, which isn't the Old Testament. It is the testament of the Jews. He shows prophetically over and over and over again, this is why this happened. So that the Jewish reader who hasn't believed in their Messiah would see from the scriptures, ah, Jesus has fulfilled every single requirement. And so Matthew puts this in here. This took place, this whole incident with the, the, the donkey and the colt, to fulfill which was spoken through the prophet. Now in verse 5, he's merged two prophetic events from two different places. The, uh, the first is Isaiah 62.11, and the next is Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 mentions both the donkey and the colt. It's interesting. The other writers of this story, which this story is in every single gospel account, Matthew is the only one that records both the the mom and the the baby colt. And it's believed that Matthew, not not that the others are saying that it didn't happen. It just wasn't significant in their storytelling. But Matthew, it's extremely important because he's showing from Scripture that this event was fulfilled, this event that Zechariah 9.9 prophesied of, that this would unfold. 
And so the first part, it says, say to the daughter of Zion. Zion is a synonymous for Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. There's no need to, to spiritualize this in, as the church. The, Zion is simply Jerusalem, uh, God's city. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of the beast of burden. And so Matthew is showing, guys, this was in our scriptures, what Jesus did. It was all foretold many, many years beforehand. And for those of us, most of us who are not Jewish, think, well, why does this matter to me? It matters everything to us. Because if Jesus isn't indeed the promised Messiah, and if he didn't fulfill all this stuff, then it's foolish to believe in him. But for us who are Gentiles who have been grafted in or considering being grafted in, this is everything. Because the evidence is overwhelming. It's not that we just choose Jesus because, oh, he works for us. The reality is that the evidence points to this Jesus being the Messiah. Then everything he says, if he's the Messiah, which I think the evidence is overwhelming, everything he says, everything he does, everything then has authority that I have no authority to to trump or to override. And so when we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled the case for jesus being the messiah builds 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 and then what happens there if this is true then i'm in trouble i i I need to the default is that you reject it there is no in-between ground and so is there is there cause is there evidence that this is worthy of my faith and the and, and i believe without a doubt that the evidence is so compelling that christ or Jesus is the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, that he is the Messiah, he is the fulfillment. And so the story continues in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought a donkey and the colt, Zechariah 9.9, fulfilled and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. So Matthew says he went went a mile away, he got this donkey, he got the colt, he brings it back, they begin to put... Uh, the coat's on there. Uh, Jesus then eventually gets on the colt, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem. Um, a, a few comments here. On, on, on Tuesday nights, we've been going through Kings. And it's interesting, the last couple of weeks, one of the, the, this whole the Kings talks a lot about Kings, if you can believe that. And so how they are sort of coronated and what, what's happening and how, how they become King and, and, and one of the things that, that has sort of surfaced as I'm studying this um, is this is unusual. The, the king would ride a donkey into town uh, as he came because the donkey is, is, a, is a working animal. It's not a war animal. Um, the, the donkey is, is an animal of peace. Uh, so a king could roll in on a donkey into any town and it's sort of like, hey, guys, no problems here. I'm not looking to call, I'm here humbly, I'm here just, you know, there's no, there's no issue. Now, the horse was a war animal. And it's so funny that this whole story, we know this story is the triumphal entry, but there's really nothing so triumphal about this other than Jesus conquered death. Like, I, I'll give you that one. Like, he conquered death and sin and that whole thing. But as far as a king goes, he's entering into Jerusalem He's, by the end of this week, by this time next week in our story, Jesus will be dead and in the grave, uh, actually will be risen from the grave. Um, he, he goes in humbly. The, the real triumphal entry, I'm not going to 
Um, I don't think I'm going to go there yet. But in Revelation 19, there's talk of the Messiah that he's going to, he's going to ride in with a, with a, on a horse and a sword is going to come into his mouth and he's going to basically reign and rule with an iron fist. That to me is a triumphal entry. That's like, hey, Jesus is coming to town and it's all business. Um, this Jesus comes in a humble spirit. The suffering servant, which is not the way that any Jew would have anticipated this going. Um, over the six weeks, one of the books that uh, Ben and I worked through was Charles Swindoll's book on, uh, on saying it well. And on one of the chapters, there was an illustration. I'm like, ooh, I got to file that one away. And I was really I'm like, ooh, I can use that illustration because Ben and Joel are gone. So there's no like, nobody will know where it came from. But that's not my style. I... So in this, Charles Swindoll begins, uh, and he's showing how he's crafted illustrations. And he tells the story about Niagara Falls. Uh, he says, uh, he refers to a time when he was teaching on the triumphal entry. And he just happened to read, this is quoting him, I just happened to read an article about Niagara Falls, where at the time, 30 million gallons poured over the precipice each minute. Somewhere just upstream of that sheer drop is a sign indicating the point of no return. If you fall into the river beyond that point, you're going over the edge. I remember going to Niagara Falls as a little kid and like standing there in the massive amount of water. I mean, it was overwhelming. It was, it was, it was like, I remember being in terror as a kid, like, I don't want to get too close for the sake that I get somehow sucked in by the air that's moving the water. And I distinctly kind of remember that sign like, hey, if you fall in after this point, you're, you're basically toast. And, and, I, I, um, and then I remember it, then we went down and you, I think you go, I don't remember the details because I was a kid. But I, next thing I know is that we're on a boat and the boat is in driving to the base of Niagara Falls where you're standing there like getting doused with water. And it's like, let's get out of here. This isn't good. And they're telling stories about if you were to fall in the water right now, you're basically being sucked into this eternal pit for who knows how long. Like there's no coming back. So when he tells the story, I think that's a powerful illustration. Now he takes this and he continues and he says, this image tied in perfectly with this moment in Jesus's life. He would walk into Jerusalem, but he wouldn't walk back out. His disciples would carry him out. Jesus is now this moment as he's mounted this donkey. Now he's going to leave Jerusalem every night. He's going to spend the night in Bethany. One night he'll spend it in the garden of Gethsemane. But, but the idea is Jesus no longer is hiding who he is. If you, if you trace back the steps continually he'd say, tell no one, tell no one about who I am. My hour hasn't come yet. Uh, hiding who he is, showing glimpses to his disciples and various people, but telling them, shh, it's not the right time. But now is the time. When he mounts on, when he gets on this donkey, this is his coronation. And everything that's going to unfold from the people throwing their coats, I don't want to get down and all the stuff. This, this is how a king would enter. If you, uh, I believe it's in a second Kings chapter nine, if you were to go there and I forget which king it was at the time, but you see the same picture unfold for this king. This is the king of Israel making his statement at this time. Israel has been without a king since they were taken into captivity many, many years ago. And Jesus comes on scene as their king. 
he gets on this donkey and he's declaring to the world, I am your Messiah, Israel. Powerful. But we know how the story goes. He will end up being basically carried out of Jerusalem on a cross. And so in verse 8, we read, most of the crowd spread their coats in most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and sp- spreading them on the road uh, um, the crowds were going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest i am um, I'm trying to, to, to figure out where I want to start here. Um, so the people throwing the coats on the road, uh, they were taking palm branches, thus the name Palm Sunday. The Palm Sunday has taken another a m- a meaning for us, um, especially if you were raised Catholic like I was. This was like you, you come in on Palm Sunday, you get a little palm branch, and I think the Wednesday before you get a little mark on your forehead. And... and uh, and it some way doesn't really convey their hearts and what they're thinking. Uh, for us to better understand this, you need to think of like American flags, that they're throwing American flags on his back. They're lining the streets with American flags. The, the, the palm branch was their national symbol of, as Israel. And Israel was now uh, really, uh, uh, they were a people without a state. Rome controlled them. And so for them, this is their nationalistic pride crying out. And the image that they have in their mind, if you turn with me um, to Zechariah, this is a picture of, so to find, before you guys start, you, I'll, help, I'll spare you from going to the table of contents. If you just turn back one book, you'll hit Malachi. And right before Malachi, there's Zechariah. And this image is what I think that they have. This image is still, is still future. Um, I believe that this is the picture of the ultimate triumphal entry. If you could go back a slide before we read, I, I want you to have the mental image of what we're, what we're talking about here. So if we could go back one slide. Uh, so here we have the East Gate. Remember how I mentioned that, that Islam has walled up that East Gate right there? They've buried, th- these are all graves right up along the Eastern Wall. Uh, for they know that the Messiah is supposed to enter through here. Um, and from where Jesus would have been, this angle, this camera angles off a little bit, but really the line would be sort of up over here. And so straight shot into the temple. It could be there, or some believe it's a little bit to the right. I'm not, well, it'll all work out. Jesus knows where he's going. And uh, <clears throat> so, so this story that I'm about to read, sort of imagine Jesus standing on the side looking towards the temple. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Suddenly, God just sort of removed the whole desecration of the graves problem and the walled thing. Earthquake split wide open, direct path straight to the temple. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach as zeal. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before, before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. 
Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at the evening time there will be light. And that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. This is fascinating. Um, well, let me finish reading the sentence before I get to the fascinating part. Um, I lost my place. Will um, we'll flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be summer as well as winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one uh, and his name the only one. It's fascinating. If you go there today, one of the tours, and for those of you who've been, you'll come down... Um, so that's the temple. If you follow the finger, like out here, it's the city of David. That was Jerusalem during the time. And if you have the opportunity, we'll go down into what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And, and there's the dry path, and then there's the wet path, which means you can wade through water to get there. They've discovered, as they've been digging and researching, that there is a huge aquifer, like huge aquifer right underneath the temple. And, and so this prophecy, written long before they knew that there was water there, they say this earthquake's going to split up open, and there's going to be so much water that it's going to flow year-round all the way to the Dead Sea, all the way to the Mediterranean, and it'll be never-ending, this, this surging. Um, it's crazy when you start looking at prophecy to see, like, as science and things start sort of trying to pick apart the Bible, that it's like, ooh, that's actually, there's water. There's enough water here to fulfill this prophecy. All we're waiting for is the Messiah and the earthquake, and every, everything's set to go in motion. And so I bring this up. You can go back to Matthew 21. So as these people are laying down their coats, as they're cutting their palm branches, as they're waving their palm branches, that image in Zechariah is the image of the Messiah that they are expecting. They're not prepared for Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And so their patriotism is cheering and ranting. They want nothing more to get Rome off their backs. But they missed everything that God was doing. And there's a huge, tough, hard, difficult issue, lesson to learn within this story. Um, I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years. I am a patriot for a long, long time. I mean, I'm still a patriot. Like, but my patriotism overshadowed my faith in Christ. And somehow in our nation, being Americans and being Christians, it's almost like, well, if you're a patriotic American, that means that you're a Christian. And so there's, there's massive confusion. And so we come to election times. And whoever your guy or gal or whoever is that's running, they're going to make everything great. Everything will be fixed. No, it won't. Like it's not, it's not like, like we so bleed the lines of Christianity into our politics. And I'm not saying every Christian, I think you should vote. You should study the issues. Our submitting to the government in our case means you get involved, you vote, you, you, like it's important. I, I'm not, don't take that away from me or don't let, well, I said that wrong, but I'm not going to fix it. I'm too swarmed in my thoughts. Um, so when we come to these issues of patriotism, I'll never forget 10, 15 years ago as an active duty Navy SEAL going to combat and my faith sort of growing, 
really being challenged to, of, of where is my ultimate allegiance? Is it to my nation or is it to my Lord? And I think that this is something that we need to, to sort of be cautious of. Um, and I think that in America, because of our system, our submitting requires involvement, in, or I wouldn't say it requires, it, it promotes and encourages involvement in the decision-making process, that it's so easy for us to think that the more patri- like your patriotism equates to mature Christianity, and that, that democracy and how the nation runs bleeds into how the church is run, um, there's some confusing lines. And so when I look at this, as they're waving their flags, essentially, as they're cheering for the Messiah, they'd missed entirely. And my fear is that we as Americans, we are so proud of who we are and we're so proud of, 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 of what we stand for that we miss what God is doing right in our midst. And this story, it just screams this. Uh, in fact, I just as a little plug, um, you know, a few months ago in May, there's a National Day of Prayer. It was a really good event. Um, God's really put it on my heart that the Monday before the elections, that, that we're going to do a worship and prayer night for a couple hours here. Um, I've reached out to the couple of pastors in the town. They, they all are really game for it. So, so we're going to have like a community event here where, um, so there's really four evangelical pastors in town, and so we each are going to sort of, we're going to have a time of worship, and then basically each pastor is going to have about 15 minutes to, to lead us as a, as a community in prayer um, the night before our election, because we, we do need to be praying for our nation in this, this time. Um, and so the people, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, good theology, Hosanna literally means it's screaming, save us, we pray, save us, we pray. But they're not thinking spiritually. They're thinking uh, government-wise, save us from Rome. But I think that Hosanna, really the ultimate issue is that save us from our sins. Save us from the condemnation that, that we have apart from Christ. They're bringing their animals to be sacrificed to, to make a temporary sort of atonement of sin, pointing them to the Messiah. And then they say, son of David, if you, uh, we're not going to go there, we're, we're running out of time, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, this is referred to as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is where David was promised a son that would come to have this eternal throne. If we go back to Matthew chapter 1 and you look at the lineage, this is what Matthew is trying to prove, that Jesus has the DNA and all of the rights, every which way, on both sides, back to the throne of Israel. And so the people are screaming, Son of David. They're saying, you are the promised Messiah. And how fickle people are, because in less than a week, these same people are going to be screaming, crucify him, crucify him, because they didn't get their way and they're having a temper tantrum. Then we come to verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, the city was stirred, saying, who is this? The city was stirred. This is uh, what Osborne says, that, that the city felt this seismic shock. It was like an earthquake with Jesus coming in. The, the, there were so many people there. Crowds had been developing, and he's authenticated himself. The whole city's now in this uproar. 
people are believing that this is the Messiah. They were off track in the direction that they thought things were going to go. And we read, when the, he entered the city, the whole city was stirred, uh, stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And in verse 12, as Jesus entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who were selling doves, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. So he makes his way into the temple. There's a slight possibility. We don't know. There are some theologians who believe that at verse 12, they believe that verse 12 actually clicks over to Monday. Some, this is Sunday night. I'm with whatever it was, it was. I don't really know at this point. Um, He enters in and he gets angry. He is upset at what he is seeing in the temple. It's fascinating to me. This is the second time that Jesus goes into the table and starts cracking the whips and kicking over tables. It happened at the very beginning of his ministry and it's happening again at the end of his ministry. The location of this is back to the last slide. If you guys want to go back there, it's at the uh, basically next one, one more. It's right in the southeast quadrant of of the temple. This is the, the this is the place of the Gentiles. Huge, twenty five acres. Uh, this is the largest building on the face of the earth at the time. This this is huge. People flocking from around the world to worship God. And as he enters in, he, he, these people buying and selling in the temple, this was a new thing. They believe that this happened only in the last 30 years at the, at the time that this happened, that these people were allowed into the temple, that this place of worship, which Jesus cares so much about. Um, I mentioned earlier, crying and anger, things that you learn about a person. So he's sad weeping over the lostness of, of the people. And now he's angry. And I think that his anger is boiling out of compassion because he cares about these people who are coming to worship God and they're being taken advantage of. That, that worship is being interrupted by consumerism. And so he's flipping over tables. The, the money changers were there. That was extortion for money. See, to go to the temple, you could only use pure silver because the coins had Caesar and other people's pagan images worshiping other gods. So there's no way that could be allowed in the temple, although it was allowed in the temple. It was there. Because in the next story, Jesus is going to say, hey, what's on your coins? And they're going to say, oh, it's on this on the coin. But so then they would say, hey, uh, if you want to get some silver to worship prophet, properly, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to convert it. Then we see the doves there. The doves were of, of the, the poorest of poor people. This is something that they could afford. Um, animals that you could buy at the temple. It was a, see, it was a gamble to bring your animal. Like if you came all the way from Galilee carrying your little lamb that you've raised, you know, your little 4-H lamb, you're bringing them all the way down there, uh, get them all the way to the temple. The animals then needed to be inspected to see that they were temple worthy. And what would happen most of the time is, that, oh, there's a little, uh, there's a mole. Like if you pull the hair, look at that, there's a mole. That's, that's going to be no good. You have to buy one of ours. And the closest modern day equivalent I can think of, probably because we went to the Storm baseball game a couple weeks ago, is the whole idea of, like, imagine going to a baseball game and to say, not only do you go to a baseball game, but that you're required to eat five hot dogs while you're there. 
Now, you can bring your own hot dogs, but they have to be approved as you're walking in. So you buy your 30-cent hot dog. You're walking into the Storm baseball game. I have my hot dogs. Am I good to go? They're like, this one only has 62 uh, sesame seeds on the bun. That's, uh, you need to have 98, so this one is rejected. And so then you walk into the stadium, and it's like, well, i got to buy five hot dogs. Each hot dog is $27. So, so you're taking it like you're – this is the situation. Like the, the whole heart of worship had turned into a money, a, a, a multi-million dollar industry for these guys. The whole purpose of the temple was to bring people to God so that they could worship adequately. Um, they, they hijacked everything. And Jesus' anger, he's, he's, it's compassion for the people. And, and Sundays, this is, to me, I look at this, I want this place to be a place of worship. And it goes through like, well, how do we do it? Sometimes, we'll, sometimes all we get as announcement is like, hey, there's a baptism on Friday and let's move along. Read your bulletin, read your bulletin, because we could get all day long talking about announcements. Or people say, hey, can you share this about this? And, and, and we, we really, truly want the time from when we walk in here to the time we leave. The, the, the worship is worship with music worship through studying the word of God. This is still worship. Giving is worship. All of this, we want it truly uh, to, to point to Christ. And so then as he goes in there flipping over tables, and he says, it is written twice he's going to point to the word of God. It's written. Don't you guys know what the scripture say? This is supposed to be a house of prayer. Outside of the temple walls, if you want to do buying and selling, that's acceptable out there. It, it's, it's within the, the temple wall is that he was upset about. And in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed him. So all of this healing begins to happen within the temple. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he'd done, you think this is going to go a different direction. It says the scribes and the, and the chief priests, they see the wonderful things he done, and the children who are shouting in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David. Their, their theology is great. They're praising them, the children. You'd think that they'd say, they were so stoked the Messiah had come. They lived to see this day. No, it says they became indignant. They were angry. Who's this guy stepping on our turf? interfering with our prophets, interfering with our authority, interfering with how we dictate to the people. And said to him, so now the priests and the scribes go to Jesus and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? You guys, are the, you're the priests and the scribes. Do you not know the scriptures? If anybody should know, you should know. And the scriptures say, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. All, all through this, if we were to go back a few chapters, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus keeps pulling little kids in front and say, you want to be great in the kingdom, be like this little one. You know, we went to Lake Tahoe on vacation and it, it, it breaks my heart like that that we're on vacation. We want to find a church to go as a family. Like, it's a super big deal. Like, like me and my family, we don't get to sit to church together. And so I'm like emailing churches like, hey, I, I'm a pastor coming into town. I'm looking for a church to go. Like, I have four, four kids. Um, are, are, we, like, are we welcome to like worship? It seems like a silly question. 
But the response, we're sorry, but, you know, kids are unpredictable. I'm like, you think kids are unpredictable? Have you met adults? <laughs> like, I, the people, like, in my 10 years of preaching, the people who I've had to, address, like, who have addressed me in the middle, it's been adults. And the older they get, the more, you know, they're not afraid to interrupt. Hey, Gunnar, what'd you say there? What'd you say? Like, I'm like, okay, well, thank you. And going around, and it's like, it, it, it's, it's been very commonplace that children are sort of, pushed to the side and not welcomed in the in the house of worship and here it is the temple these children are crying out all through the new testament jesus says have you not read we're to look to the children children have the the capacity and the aptitude and this the, the ability to worship god and i think a lot of times we as parents actually should be scolded for we set their lives in a direction apart for god and prioritize things in a way that we sear their little consciences and we wonder by the time they get to high school why why is little johnny partying and going crazy and not going to church anymore huh well maybe it's because you had a part to play in helping them choose their priorities over the course of their life and this is a huge table i see jesus flipping over and in verse 17 we end with he left them this this verse somehow this week has struck me as sad i last year when we went on vacation we went up to visit my my brother-in-law and his wife and we we went to church with them their church meets in a church building or i should say their church meets in a former church building that's now offices and so they're a church that rents a space out in an office building that actually is a church you go through europe and there's churches shut down we go see these beautiful cathedrals and and see things but it's like God has left. And, and, and he's going to come back, but there's this image that he, he leaves them. And, and I, don't, I don't want God to leave like our church, which is not the building, it's, it's the people. But, but this church has a history of, before I came, it was like God was about to, this was about to turn into offices or something, I don't know. And so when I look at this story, like, like first and foremost, when I look at this whole story, first and foremost is the prophecy concerning Jesus. Jesus is Lord, period. He, we can come and we can make our estimation. What we think about Jesus doesn't change who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. We as humans can come and can evaluate. And if we reject him, that doesn't mean that his position changes. He's still God. He's still in authority. He's still... Uh, the, the promised Messiah. This passage is critical. It's, it's one of the pieces of the puzzle, a huge piece that points to the deity of Christ. And I think that there's a huge danger in theological arrogance. There are, there are key things that we hold in our right hand that, 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 that we will fight and die for. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. What is the Bible? It's the word of God. That's not something that we'll give on. Then, then there are other things within Christian circles. Calvinism, Arminianism, translation, New American Standard, NIV, like King James. These are not things we fight and die over. These are, these are things that, 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 that God, that, that his followers can have different convictions on. And so we hold those in our left hand. We can have deep theological convictions, but we need to be humble because 
I don't know how God, the story's going to work out. I know that Jesus is coming back, but I, I'm not going to start naming dates and times. I'm just going to, I would just want to humbly walk with him and let him do, like, let him handle all that stuff. And I see in these people that they had missed the big point because they were so wrapped up around being right that they had missed sort of humbling themselves before the Lord. We see Jesus flipping over tables. And this week, I'm asking if Jesus walked into our church this week, what tables would he flip over? If he walked in um, to our homes, what tables would he flip over? What things are we, are, are we skewing in our worship of him? And I can't answer that question for you. That's something for each of us to sort of ask ourselves this week. Lord, what, what areas of my life am I kind of putting you on the back, back burner of my life? And so let's pray. Father, I do. Lord, I do thank you for the overwhelming evidence pointing to Christ as the Messiah. I thank you that as archaeology, as science, scientists start digging and exploring uh, archaeological things that are within the New Testament and Old Testament, Lord, that with every discovery, all it does is affirm what you have said. And while there is so much evidence pointing to Christ or Jesus being the Christ, it still requires us to become connected to him through faith. That there is no way to skip beyond faith. Father, we thank you that the way in which that you have put the option on the table to be right or to be cleansed, to be healed, to be restored in our relationship with you that our sin has created is through an act of grace. That it was Christ who being God came to earth, that he went to the cross for us that we might be saved by believing upon him. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room who maybe have not come to the place of, of trusting in you as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help them by your spirit, Lord, to, to connect the dots, to answer questions and things that are, that are holding them back from being able to make the step of faith. And Father, for those of us who have known you, some for a long time, some for a little bit of time, Father, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts and show us areas in our life that we, um, where we have sort of built up things that you did not intend to be built up. Father, I pray that you would, um, Lord, help us um, to present our, our, our calendars to you, our finances to you, our our, our priorities to you, Lord, in a way that you could guide us and that we would humbly follow. I pray for our church, Lord, that this would be a place where people could experience your grace, your love, your mercy, um, that we would aid people in true worship of you because that's why we exist. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.